Well, um, this week we begin uh, our, our next step in our Open Here series. We are in Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. And it's an interesting section of Scripture, right? Um, we talk about some pretty uh, touchy subjects, in, in some sense, <laughs> uh, as you think about reading. Um, uh, but let's, let's spend a moment together in prayer. All right. Our Father, we come to you thankful for your word, knowing that you speak to us in your timeless truths, in timely ways, where we are in the midst of our own hurt, our own pain, our own questions. And so we come to you uh, asking that you would enlighten our minds, that you would stir our hearts and empower our hands towards godly service, um, that your name might be glorified in our time here, and we would know how to um, know you better, that we would know how to go deeper in our relationship and our walk with you. You are a good God. Uh, May we be reminded of that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last year, uh, my wife and I, we went out to Iowa uh, for um, Allie's grandparents' 60th wedding anniversary. And as I looked around the room, I saw their their children, their grandchildren, and even their great-grandchildren. I mean, this was a pretty massive crew. And uh, all gathering around David and Bertha, or as the fam calls them, you know, Paca and Nini. You know, we all got these pet names for our grandparents, right? And, and they had met when they were 15 years old and then made the step of marriage, of promising to be with each other forever uh, until death do they part at ages 20 and 19. So you imagine 60 years of life that they'd been journeying together. But their, uh, their 60th wedding anniversary, it wasn't all cheers. It wasn't all excitement. Um, just a few years earlier, Bertha had started having some signs of Alzheimer's. Um, And over the the following years, she began to lose memories, first of her grandchildren, then of her children, and then to the point that she didn't even recognize her own husband um, and would become very erratic and very scared when he would come in the room um, because she didn't even know who he was. Who is this stranger? And yet, uh, David would come day after day. He would help feed her. He would brush her hair. He would just sit and talk with her, even when her speech made no sense. He would just be with her. And they even even left their apartment. Now, they never owned a home in their entire lives. Uh, He was a pastor and was always living in parsonages. But they had an apartment that was close to them, and they moved out of the apartment to move into a facility that, yes, had assisted living capabilities, but was primarily to help Bertha with her Alzheimer's. And even though... They'd been married for 60 years. You could just see their marriage vows were just as fresh as they were 60 years ago. Um, and the day, the, day, um, the day came, though, and it was very soon. It was a couple weeks after, after their 60th wedding anniversary where Bertha um, no longer could fight the embrace of death. Um, she became another victim to, to the, the slew of victims to the awful disease of Alzheimer's. Their vows had been truly fulfilled. It was until death that they parted. They'd completely followed through on their promise. And there's something, when we hear a story of just utter commitment, through trials and tribulations and through difficulties, there's something about that story that stirs within all of us. I mean, it's the same sort of feeling 
And when you hear about a couple who's been married for 30 or plus years, and it just kind of usually breaks into uh, random applause. People are so excited. And the reason is, is we get so much in our life, we get rare opportunities to hear the affirmation that promises can be and are kept. I mean, in the world that we live today, and I was talking with Allie about this earlier this week, um, she, she reminded me of Mary Poppins' quote, you know, the world we live in has a lot of pie-crust promises, easily made, easily broken. And uh, promises, they're, they're, they're much more gimmicks. They're used for manipulation so much in our world. You say what you want to get what you want, and then you forget what you said. And we see this all over in the rest of our experience. You see the fine print and credit card deals. This is what you get, and then you've got all these extra little pieces you have to be aware of. You know, you, you have money-back guarantees that aren't necessarily guarantees. You have politicians who make pledges. You have families that have made promises to one another but end in disaster. Promises, they just seem to mean so little in our world today. Promises, they almost seem to be made in order to be broken. That's the narrative. That's the story we many times hear when we think of promises. Well, last week we dove into the beginning of our story, the beginning of our good world that God created. Um, but there came one eventful day when it all went to pot, right? Um, it all changed. What we experience today with our pain and our hurts and our promises that so easily become lies was not the way it was designed to be. And Satan, that old snake, you know, he enticed the first humans and pushed them and called them and enticed them to push against their design, and even more so, and even more horrendous, to push against their creator. Then at the moment that these first human beings rebelled, all of creation fell with them. And so it's at this stage in the story, we're left asking, what's God going to do? Is he going to just let his creation, who freely made this decision, wallow in their destructive cycles of pain, until they finally kill themselves? Or is he going to step in? Is he going to actually care enough to step in and redeem and restore, even though he didn't have to, even though he could let it go its way? What will God do? Well, this morning we pick up in the story a little bit later. Chapter 17, we ended in chapter 3. And some of you have been reading um, through our, our crew of Open Here uh, this past week. And God makes a promise to this world. And it calls one man on a journey. His name, at first, is Abram. And we'll see here it changes and why it changes. And as some of you read this past week in Genesis 12, God promises Abram that he will have a great land, tons of offspring, and a very mighty nation that even has global influence. And God makes this initial call, not when Abram, I I love this, not when Abram is in the vigor of his 20s, you know, not when he's uh, at the height of exploration in his 30s, not when he's in the field of experience at his 40s, but Abram is 75 years old. He then gets the call to go to a land by saying, why don't you just start going on the road and I'll tell you when you get there. (laughs) This is our first picture of Abram. This is the first picture we see of this elderly man who's trusting God by going, although he does not know where. How's this journey going if we fast forward 11 years later in chapters 15 and 16 of Genesis? Well, at age 86, 
Abram is still without a land to call his own. He's still without children from his wife, Sarai. And not yet a nation, you know, for this global influence and blessing. But God, he confirms that he hasn't forgotten his promise to Abraham. And he does so through this strange interaction, or at least in our minds in the 21st century, it seems really far-fetched and really strange. Um, You see, it was common um, for ancient Near Eastern kings and their underling little vassal leaders of towns um, to make these promises or covenants through a ritual. Through a ritual. So to show the severity of their promise, they would actually cut animals in half, stick them on two sides, and they would walk through the animals. It was a way of saying, if I break my end of the bargain, may I be just as rent as these animals. Um, Well, in this particular instance, you know, this is a real common, like I said, ancient Near Eastern practice. And we read about it here in Scripture. But Abram falls asleep, and God walks through the animals alone. An essence of saying, no matter what you do, Abram, I'm committed to my saving purposes. I'm committed to working through you and redeeming my creation. So as Abram continues on his journey, we find him still waiting without having. None of his promises have yet to be fulfilled. He's walking, and yet he doesn't see yet what God has, but he's holding to a promise. Holding to a promise. And this morning we focus on Abraham's journey another 13 years later. So Abraham, or Abram at this point, he's 99 years young, you know, um, and he's 24 years into this promise exploration. And we see that the same God who made the universe, the same God makes some huge promises. And actually, he keeps them. And we'll come to see how. So turn with me to Genesis 17 if you have your Bibles with you. And if you don't um, have your Bible, you can also look in on your welcome folder. As you saw earlier, it's printed there. For this is the primary text where we're going to be spending our time. We value God's Word as a guide for our life. We submit ourselves to what God is saying to us here today. Um, And so we, we, we long to see what he's speaking through his experience with Abraham, how he experiences us today. And so... You've also, which is a great benefit, if you are doing the whole story plan, you're, you're tasked with reading this chapter today. So some of you may have already read it. Some of you will read it later today, right? Um, if you haven't. Uh, or some of you, if you're doing the whole Bible plan, read it earlier last week. Well, in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, we read this. When Abram was 99 years old... The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. So God shows up after being silent for 13 years. And before he talks about anyone or anything else, he reminds Abram who he is. And that's pretty significant. He is God Almighty. In the Hebrew, sometimes you may have even heard this in songs, he is El Shaddai. This title, it's difficult for translators to interpret. But but when we, what we do know is every time it shows up, every time this name of God is used, it's linked right when God is promising that, that folks will have descendants. It's, it's connected with progeny, you know, if we want to use that word. So one Old Testament scholar, Walt Kaiser, he helps us understand what this title of God, what God is trying to say about himself. He says, This name stressed the might 
and power of God. And he overpowered nature and forced her to forward his plan of salvation, his broken creation. El Shaddai indicated God's ability to master nature, even barrenness. Thereby linking together his work in creation and now his overpowering work in history to affect his plan. Which is just a long way of saying, you know, God's promise begins with God. You know, it's theologians, I love them. I tend to be slightly one, but sometimes we can get wordy. Ultimately, it's just saying God's promise begins with God. He is all-powerful. He is almighty. And if we think about every time we make a promise... Think about what it's based on. If you don't have some sort of property to use as collateral, what are the two components you think about? Well, um, it's, it's based on your understanding of that person's character first and that person's competency. You know, is this someone that's trustworthy in their words and the actions you've seen? And are they able to deliver? If either is lacking, really the promise is empty in its void, right? Well, for example, um, if I asked, you know, if I asked Beth, you know, or Beth tells me that she's going to pay off my student loans, you, you have to ask two questions. One, is Beth the kind of person who's good, who follows through with her promises? And then secondly, is Beth a, in, in the financial situation that she's capable to pay off my student loans? Um, and so you have to ask these questions. Does Beth have the means to accomplish said promise? You know? So if we think about when somebody uh, gives you a promise, you're thinking about character and competency. And because God here describes himself as El Shaddai, as all-powerful, we can take what he says seriously. His promises flow out of who he is. He's all-powerful. He's all-capable. Longing that his creation be very good again. This is the whole reason he's in this business. It's because he cares about you and he knows that he's going to turn out glorious in the end. But there's something else we, we learn when we look in on this scene between God and Abraham. It's not only that God's promise begins with God, but God's promise brings our rescue. Let's read the first two verses again. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. We come to learn quickly in life that we have our breaking points, don't we? Those moments where we just can't go on, those moments, those thresholds that we meet that we know we just can't pass. Well, God is El Shaddai here. He's almighty, and we aren't. And if the world has any hope for change, if it has any hope whatsoever towards transformation of the way things were, it's got to come through God's strength and His intervention. And so it is in God, in his promise, in his covenant between Abraham and himself, where Abram finds rescue and renewal. This really works out tangibly for Abram and Sarai in their longing for a child. He's 86 now, or 99 actually now, and they've tried and they cannot have a child. And they know that God has to do some sort of miracle, especially because of their age. And so God says... Now, in the power of my promise, me being El Shaddai, me choosing you, you will conceive. I am the one who will actually make you multiply greatly. Right? I mean, and think about these words, multiply you greatly, and what this means in our bigger story. Do we remember from last week 
uh, what God told the first man and woman to do in the garden as a key part of their role. It was to be fruitful and to multiply. But when humanity was broken, relationally, emotionally, physically, holistically, just fragmented at the, at the fall, even the things we were designed to do can become difficult or even impossible. This results with some families today still struggling and wrestling to have children and wrestling with infertility. This was never God's intended journey for his people, ever. And so God begins his renewing work here, specifically in the story of Abram and Sarai's pain through his promise. God's promise that he will ultimately multiply them greatly, where they clearly cannot do it themselves. I mean, especially now that he's 99 years old. If they conceive and give birth to a child, there's going to be no question that it was God who did it. There's going to be no thought that said, oh, wow, you guys got it. Great job. You know, it's going to be like something miraculous is happening here between Abram and Sarah. And it's in the midst of this child that seems impossible, that global happiness and flourishing will be possible. In the midst of all this, God is so great that as he's working together for Abram and Sarai, he's also also working for you and me. As he's seeking to bless Abram and Sarai, he's seeking to bless you and me. Even though we can't see exactly yet in this particular passage how we fit into the story, but we will see. He's planting the seed of a new garden. If we think about him returning to the garden, longing for that intimacy with his creation once again, that will grow into a heavenly dwelling generations and generations later. But God doesn't stop with what he will do. He's always calling his people to enter into his promises, to own them. Yes, God's saving work is opposed to earning. We cannot earn his love or his grace, but it isn't opposed to effort. And we can say this with confidence, that God's promise is free, but it isn't cheap. It's free, but it isn't cheap. Yes, God offers his good promises freely, but he also calls us to respond to his promises fully. It's, it's God's interaction here with, uh, in between Abram and himself that we get to really get a glimpse of how God works with his people. He first promises, then he calls to action. He first gives and then he demands. He first lavishes love, then calls for reciprocation. He always is the initiator. He's the first mover. So, for example, um, when Allie and I got engaged, you know, we made a promise to get married. And then we did a bunch of stuff. I mean, a bunch of stuff. You know, it's, it's a lot of work in wedding planning. Now, now, imagine how silly it would be if you flipped that order. You first had to plan all the wedding and all the different details and all the work. And then, if it turned out okay, then you got engaged. (laughs) I can tell you this, you'd have a lot less engagements and a lot less weddings. Um, Why? Because all the work of planning a wedding is based on a promise. It's based on a promise you've already made to one another. It makes it worth it. It makes it endurable. And sometimes it's enjoyable. But the work is in response to a promise that's been made, not vice versa. And this is what we see between God and Abram. Through his journey with God up to this point, 
um, Abram has already seen God commit to him unconditionally. Remember, he walked through the carcasses by himself, which seems strange to us, but makes a huge statement in the ancient Near Eastern mind. The promise has been made, and God invites Abram to experience the depths of his promise here. Experience the depths of his promise. We have to see that these opening two verses, they're not a bargain. Um, Well, in one sense, they're a bargain, but they're not bargaining uh, with one another. They are the conditions in which God can give more of all that he desires. I mean, verse 2, literally, if we interpret it, is that I may give you my promise. Not that I may make my promise, but that I may give the greater depths of my promise. For God does not will a distant and half-hearted relationship. And so, he gives, any more, he gives more. And God's promise, it calls us, it calls us to intimacy. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me. Now, this phrase literally is translated, walk right up in my face. You know, it's an idiom that communicates this unashamed closeness with the creator of the universe. And we catch a glimpse of this. I keep going to marriage metaphors because it's a great example of covenant, of promise. But we we catch a glimpse of this when we see a newly married couple out on the dance floor, you know, for their first dance. What do they look like? They've got their arms intertwined. They're lost in each other's gaze. And as far as they're concerned, they're the only two people in the room at that point. And they're so consumed with each other at that point and experiencing one one another's love and celebrating the promise that they've just made. Well, here we see that same sort of... Uh, 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 of focus, that the idea of staying focused on the gaze of one's beloved, living our lives, some have said, in the audience of one, one great love that supersedes them all, one ever-watching gaze we seek to please and to be pleased with. It's this type of transparent and total living that frees us not to worry about what other people perceive us as being when we're following God's ways, because it's His gaze we're locked into. It's His face we're walking before. He is our audience of one. God's longing for that same intimacy He's experienced back in the garden, where we walked and we talked with Him, and it was our joy and our greatest delight. Now, some of you are tired of always... um, God giving commands, you know, God always saying, do this and do that, and this transparency seems very uncomfortable, you know, because then you you hear only God's condemning voice say, cut that out, stop screwing around, stop doing that. Well, guess what? God's tired of having that same label on him as well. He's tired of people just saying that he's about do's and don'ts. What we do and what we don't do does matter to God, and that's important, and scripture gives us guidance. But that's not all he wants. He wants much more than that. He wants our hearts. He wants all of us. And he wants us to want all of him and to be locked into his gaze and to be walking in his face. Do you hear this call to intimacy? Is this something that links up with your own passions, your own affections, your own desires? Are you seeking God as your audience of one? And if not, maybe the first step is to ask the Holy Spirit to be stirring those affections within your heart. 
Because it's then and it's only then that the second invitation is possible. In this intimacy, he also calls us to wholeness. To wholeness. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, what does this phrase, or this, these two words, be blameless, mean? Many times we tie this word with moral action. No one can blame you publicly for an outward wrong activity. But there's more going on here than meets the eye. The Hebrew word, and if you've been around Christ's community for a while, you know it well, is the Hebrew word tome. Tome. Tome has just, mu- just as much to do with who you are as what you do. Another word that could be used to translate tome or wholeness here is integrity. You know, this is where who you are internally matches up with how you live externally. It's not about just doing the right things, but it's about being the right kind of person. It's who you be lining up with what you do. You know, it's ultimately, it's a way of describing a type of person, someone who's consistent in all aspects of their life. Now, you could say that in the garden, we were made beautiful. At the fall, we became broken. And in our walk with God, he calls us to be blameless, to be whole, slowly putting the pieces back together. When we're known by and we know the Holy One, finally then can we learn to live into our identity as whole ones. So how does this identity, how does this intimacy and wholeness work its way out practically in Abram's life? Well, let's pick up in verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face in utter humility here. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations. And kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God says this to Abraham. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So what about Abram? Abram. Well, he first wears a new name and then he wears a new symbol. He has a new name. After all these years, things are going to change for Abram um, and how other people view him, even how he views himself. And, and a name signifying now this extreme honored fatherhood. Abram to Abraham. Not only is his uh, name meaning slightly changed, but it grows. I mean, there's this unique wordplay that the author here of Genesis is, is playing that his name literally got greater because it added an extra syllable. There's, there's a little bit of wordplay there in the literary work of God's Word. Um, but could you imagine at age 99 changing your name? 
I mean, for me, it seems a little late in the game. There's a lot of paperwork, some newsletters you've got to send out. Uh, but, but God has his reasons. And you see, if we look, um, this is a really helpful commentary uh, by one Jewish gentleman. Um, he says, in the psychology of the ancient Near Eastern world, a name was not merely a convenient means of identification, not because it sounded neat or unique, but was intimately bound up with the very essence of being and in, inextricably intertwined with personality. So, for example, if a person was not given a name, it was equivalent to non-existence. The inauguration of a new era or a new state policy would frequently be marked by the assumption of a new name on the part of the king. A classic example is the case of Amenhotep IV of Egypt, whose change of name to Akhenaten testified to the revolutionary new theology that he imposed on his people. This was, ancient Near Eastern minds knew this. When a name changed, it wasn't just because it sounded more trendy, but it meant that something drastic was happening in the life of this person and the life of those who were under that person. He ruled. So Abram becomes Abraham, a sign of God's fruitfulness that's going to flow from him and the sign of great blessing that is still to come. But he also gives him a new sign. Not only a new name, but a new sign. Every guy who's a part of Abraham's clan has to be circumcised. And every newborn boy who's a part of Abraham's family after the eighth day he's been on this planet has to be circumcised. It's a symbol of this promise. I mean, talk about tome. <laughs> talk about wholeness. Nothing is off limits for God. And uh, God's call on our lives, here's the beauty of this symbol. God's call on our lives, it impacts the most personal and intimate parts of who we are. Those parts that we normally keep hidden from most others, those dreams we're afraid to share, those desires and ambitions that burn deep within us, he meets us in our most intimate and personal places and calls us into his promise. It's not without consequence that at the same breath that God promises to bring royal offspring from Abram or Abraham, this is his heart's desire. The source of this offspring is left with a mark of God's work and promise. And with the irreversible nature of circumcision, it symbolizes the enduring and irrevocable nature of God's promise to Abraham. Would Abraham say that God's promise is cheap? No way. <laughs> it's freely offered, yes, um, and it's God's intervention in history through Abraham, through his family, through his descendants. But it also calls him to respond. It calls him to action. And if you listen to this, the very day that Abraham hears this, if we read the rest of Genesis 17, he carries this call out. Every man within his clan is circumcised that very day. Immediate obedience. I mean, if, if you were part of Abraham's clan and you got hired that day, you'd obviously wish you'd got the next day. But, um, I mean, there's an element here of Abraham's utter trust in God's word and his commitment to God's ways, he's going to go right then and there. When God says, walk before my face, he falls on his face. And when God says to take extreme action, he takes extreme action without hesitation. This is the kind of faith we see of Abraham. I mean, this year, for Abraham, his 99th year before he goes into the triple digits, um, it's a monumental one for him. 
Because not only did he receive a new name and a new sign, but he also hears the news of a new son. You see, Sarah's name is also changed. It was, from, it was Sarai to Sarah to also be a symbol that this promised generations are going to come through her in her barrenness. There's no wiggle room here any longer. It's to come through Sarah. And 24 years after the promise God had initially made to Abraham. In the ripe old age of 99, Abraham was finally able to be a father. A father to a son from Sarah. And the child's name was Isaac. You could just imagine the utter joy when he finally held his son from Sarah. But even so, even if, as we look, and that's in Genesis chapter 21, even so, yes, God holds his promise, but Isaac was never meant to be the total fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. He was never the ultimate fulfillment. For what about the land? What about the great nation? What about this global influence that he doesn't? He doesn't own land at the end. He's not um, a great nation, and he does not have that global influence by the time he dies. This promise was always greater than Isaac, although Isaac had a part to play in it. You see, our God, he keeps his promises, just not always the way we think he will. Not always the way we expect him to. He's a God of mystery and great wisdom. And although we don't always, and aren't always able to follow the logic... His wisdom supersedes ours. His ways are not our ways. And what we see is this huge arrow that flows through, as we continue to read this year, this huge arrow that flows through every story in Scripture that's pointing to one man, to one promised heir, to one promised one. And how so? God fulfills his end of the promise in Jesus he fulfills his end of the promise in Jesus through one thousands of years later. And the gospel writers, they know this well. I mean, in Matthew, at the very beginning of his gospel, the first book of the New Testament, we see him write this. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's an intimate connection here. God's promise was never meant to ultimately be fulfilled in Isaac, but is always pointing to Jesus. All of history is landing on the Son of God. And God's promise, he's been promising us Jesus in every act of redemption since the fall. Paul furthers this point when he says in Galatians, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. It's all pointing to Jesus. Jesus is Abraham's ultimate promised son. He is the king through whom all the nations are blessed. He is the king through whom the promised land ultimately comes when heaven and earth come together in the new heavens and the new earth under his leadership. So how do we fit in in all this? He fulfills our end of the promise through Jesus too. Um, yes, Abraham is a great man of faith. And he's a great example that calls us to respond to God with immediacy and in trust. But we know that we are all sinners, for, it is, uh, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. 
And we all need redemption. We all need to be saved from our own destructive cycles, our own decisions of pain and hurt and promises that we've broken. So Paul continues in his letter to the church in Galatia when he writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. These promises are also to us. A great land, a a phenomenal family, global influence for good. These are all yours in Jesus. You too are heirs according to God's promise. And you see, God's promise, it began with God. God's promise, yes, it brings our rescue. God's promise, it's free, but it isn't cheap. It calls us to respond. And he's calling each and every one of us into intimacy. Each and every one of us into wholeness. Through Abraham's promised son fulfilled, Jesus Christ. So will you heed his call this morning? Will you go where you do not know? Will you walk when you cannot see? And will you wait when you do not have? As you trust in God and go deeper in your walk with Him. Let's trust in His promises as we pray together. Our Father, we do come to you this morning again, and we are. Sometimes it's difficult when we go back into the ancient Near Eastern world and um, we see how you worked through a people and through a person named Abraham. And how you met him where he was, and you called him to intimacy and to wholeness. May you meet us here this morning. Um, May we hear your voice calling us. May we trust in what you've done for us, ultimately in Jesus. That we might come to a greater experience of wholeness. And live before you as our audience of one. We thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.